Hi, welcome to LifeSide Beat. My name's Karan, the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Dr. Bartholomew Salah, the COO of Avesta Therapeutics, an early-stage cancer therapeutics company. He is also the founder and managing partner of Cola Global, a consulting and management firm providing support in business strategy, commercialization strategy, and transaction execution for foreign investment firms and life sciences companies. BA previously worked in the investment arm of Militia Hill Ventures and as a strategy fellow with Tally Bio, now known as Spearvant Sciences. He serves on the investment committee for the Penn Medicine War in Fund for Health. BA earned his MD at the University of Pennsylvania, an MBA from the Wharton School, and holds a degree in human developmental and regenerative biology from Harvard University. Please join me in welcoming Dr. B.A. Salah to LifeSide Beat. Hi, B.A. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Happy to be here. We always like to start with a bit of background about the guest. Could you please tell us where you grew up and what you wanted to be when you grew up? So I grew up uh, just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I guess when I was really little, I wanted to be a firefighter, but that didn't last long and then a vet, but ended up wanting to go into medicine around high school and college because I had to look up to my older sister who was a physician. I had an uncle who was a physician. I always knew that I wanted to be able to have some type of impact in science and help people and it seemed like medicine was the best way of doing that. Great. And I see you landed at Penn for your MD and MBA. Could you speak a bit to your journey throughout graduate school and deciding on career paths? So going into med school, I knew or I thought at least I wanted to do something in medicine that was quote unquote business related as well. So that's really why I chose Penn because of the great resources there and the ability to um, do the dual degree program, but also in the way that it's structured, being able to kind of try out the clinical aspects before applying into the MBA. So my first year summer worked in public health and consulting abroad um, really liked the clinics, really liked clerkships, but still wanted to get that MBA education. Um, spent some time in venture capital abroad uh, uh, between med school and Wharton. And what really influenced me was going in and seeing in our healthcare cohort just how how many people were able to think of the same healthcare problem so many different ways. If they were coming from the clinical background or coming from a consulting background or finance or marketing of just there's so many ways of solving these problems. And for me, it got to the point where um, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my career. And every time someone asked me what I wanted to do, I would say, I want to do something in innovation in healthcare. I want to work on this project. I want to work on this problem and solve it through this company. And then I want to practice a day a week. I want to practice a day every other day a week. And the fact that it was already kind of an afterthought for me to do actual clinical medicine drove me to go into um, the more entrepreneurial side of medicine instead. That makes sense. So left with the choice of where to start your career, how did you think about that? Yeah, I had a kind of interesting start to my career because after Wharton, or I guess in second semester of second year, I was still trying to figure out do I want to make an impact um, on the venture and company side or do I want to go more into hospital management, kind of solve the issues that hospitals see from like, the systems level down? So I was doing a bit of both. I was consulting for the office of the CEO at Einstein in North Philly on some really cool projects around the health system. I was also doing some consulting work with 
Ben Franklin Technology Partners, a uh, venture firm here in Philadelphia on their health and digital health tracks. Really liked both, very different work. And what changed it for me was that the timing and pace and bureaucracy of the healthcare system just didn't really gel with my personality. So I decided that I wanted to go into the venture side full time. And I just got really lucky having gone abroad twice during med school because I was meeting with the head of global health at Penn just to catch up. And he was asking me what I wanted to do. And I kept saying, I want to end up in venture and see how that world looks. And he had just joined on as an advisor to the firm I ended up joining, Militia Hill Ventures. So he introduced me to the partners. I started to get to know them and really liked the work and the process. And they asked me to join the team. What I really liked about the way it was structured was that Militia Hill had a active build model, similar to kind of like a flagship or some of those other firms where we didn't just passively invest in companies. We would identify companies that we, identify, sorry, technologies that we thought were really interesting, really innovative, meeting unmet need, and then would start a company, manage it, and eventually spin it out. So I split my time at the firm between um, identifying new technologies, new funding sources for those, and working on new company ideas. The other half of my time, a small group of us actually managed a gene therapy company in cystic fibrosis. It was really a great opportunity to learn what early stage biotech looks like and all of the kind of pain points you hit. Because we managed that company from initially working on negotiating the license for those technologies. We had to do all of the R&D plans and work on the financing of it work on uh, grants and hitting milestones, doing a lot of work around regulation. And eventually we sold that company to Royvant about two and a half, three years after it was formed. So we went from being Tally Bio to now Spiravant, which is still um, active here in Philadelphia. So it was a really great learning experience getting to see both sides of the table. On one side, understanding how investors look at early stage companies, understanding how investors evaluate them and finance them. On the other side, understanding how companies actually function on a day-to-day basis, both in terms of meeting milestones to get to their clinical endpoints and reach patients, but also reaching milestones that are the value points that make future investors or acquirers really interested in what the company has accomplished. Yeah, I would love to dive deeper into the identification of this technology and some of the steps that you and the broader Militia Hill team were forced to undertake to sort of get this up and running and make it not just an amazing technology, but a viable company that could potentially grow and bring in new investors. Yeah, the story of Tally and now Spire Events is very unique where you typically think of finding a technology and then finding a problem that it works for and we can go back and forth. But the way it works for Tally was that there was a local cystic fibrosis foundation called Emily's Entourage run by Penelum, who had a very rare type of cystic fibrosis, where all of the drugs that Vertex was developing, like the lead CF company, could not uh, treat her mutation. So she decided that the best route to go forward to kind of treat her disease was to start a company and use that as a means of really driving science quickly, instead of trying to go through the academic route. So she approached the partners of the firm and said, basically, here is money please go find a way of solving this problem. So what the partners then did is they went out and looked at 
every single angle you could possibly look at for solving this type of disease, be that certain types of molecules, certain types of cell or gene therapies, other approaches to treating disease. And basically what they determined was that the best route for treating this type of disease was a gene therapy because with patients that have this rare type of CF, they don't have any functional CFTR gene that you can really either increase or modify or stabilize to treat the disease. So you basically have to give them a new gene. So once they decided gene therapy, the next choice was, well, which one and how do we do it? So the partners then identified um, several academic founders who were experts in a lot of aspects around gene therapy, around CF, and around the types of models that support it. So they found two really strong gene therapy products, one an AAV, one a lentivirus. They found both a mini gene and then a promoter that was very useful with driving forward on the AAV side. They identified the right animal models to use and basically the right ways of manufacturing these, as well as all of the academic key opinion leaders who could drive this forward. So it was a very unique way of starting the company. And then it was figuring out the best pathway forward. And if you can think about it, you're trying to go to the FDA and say, we have what will be the first inhaled gene therapy using a small version of a gene that you give with this other treatment. Please approve it. So there's just a lot of thought that went into what are the right experiments that will be needed? What's the right evidence and display of safety and efficacy that is needed to really show that this very unique, innovative way of treating disease should be approved down the line? Absolutely. I think it's a great example of patient advocacy playing you know, an important role in early stage drug development, something we've seen in rare diseases such as cystic fibrosis. You know, As you think about moving the drug forward, would love to hear how the team thought about the inflection points and how steps were taken to move towards what was ultimately a very exciting acquisition by Royvant. So really, some of the basic value inflection points were finalizing the design of the different uh, technologies, because as you can imagine, there's many pieces being pulled together that you need to show work and function the way you think it is. And then the key is getting the right set. The key for us was getting the right set of animal data that would then support a IND application to start clinical trials. So when we started going up to fundraise, the company at that point had been funded by Emily's Entourage. We had uh, a convertible one node in from the Science Center and then support from some other organizations, especially the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And we were going out to raise enough money that would really get us that initial clinical data that would then be the next value inflection point. And we went out to raise a series A and through that process actually then identified certain groups that were excited about fully acquiring the company. And that's where we started these conversations with Royvant. So as you know, Royvant has started several companies over the years through their structure. And we were actually the first full acquisition that Royvant did versus just going out and finding different technologies. And they were able to provide the resources internally and externally that would give the Spiravant team the right tools it needed to move down the pathway toward getting into the clinic and then eventually being able to treat patients. It's always heartening to hear that patients do lie at the center of all this work. 
To wrap up this conversation, would love to hear about how the deal came together and how different stakeholders were thinking about it. I would say the key points that we went back and forth on were just valuation at the get-go, being able to make sure that we could land on a place that both we, being the company as well as Roy Event, was comfortable with. It was then structuring uh, the deal in the right way. So it was structured as bio bucks. So there was like upfront payments and then milestone payments. So what was the right upfront payment? What milestones were the right milestones to then give additional payments and uh, what value, what uh, monetary values to give to those different uh, valuation points. And then a big piece that played into it was what resources can Roy Vant bring to the table? Because I think that the very strong is that they have a very good internal team of um, KOLs as well as an internal team of, that's able to take care of back office and a lot of other functions that typically companies have to do themselves. So being able to rely on those resources was also something that was very attractive in this deal and took a lot of back and forth, but we landed at a place that everyone was happy with. And here we are several years later, Spirevant still going strong. Indeed it is wanted to move to sort of the next chapter of your career in which you went back to a theme you mentioned earlier around having some other interests in healthcare. And it seems that some of these intersections across other realms of the healthcare ecosystem played into your ability to ultimately take on your current role, which we'll touch on as well. But would love to hear a bit about some of the advising and consulting experiences you did prior to joining Avesta. Yes. So when I left Militia Hill, I actually ended up starting my own consulting practice where I was able to work with a lot of really interesting groups on interesting projects. And most of that focus on that intersection that I had that I learned in school, that I learned from Militia Hill, of that intersection of funding and company formation and company management all leading to innovation, all needed to come together at the right points. And I got to work with a lot of really cool groups. Um, did a lot of work with the African Union as they were looking to develop new funds to support innovation across the continent, both in terms of infrastructure as well as funds to support actual companies making medical and healthcare advancements on the continent. I got to work with Penn Medicine on several projects looking at new research opportunities and focuses looking at new um, ways of driving toward innovation by spinning certain things out of the university. Got to work with and advise some projects with other companies directly who are looking to expand in the United States or expand in other geographies. So it was really a amazing opportunity to see not just what I'd learned in terms of pure biotech management, but also how do other groups, how do other organizations, how do other institutions think about driving toward a new community of healthcare innovation? Because that was the biggest theme that I learned that you can't do innovation in the bubble. It takes a, it takes an army, it takes a village to really push things forward. You're gonna, if you, even if you're just in biotech, you're gonna need your manufacturers, you're gonna need your vendors, you're gonna need your healthcare systems, institutions to run your clinical trials. So just really seeing how all the stakeholders come together and all the pieces come together was a huge learning opportunity during that uh, period. Absolutely. It's clear that this constellation of experiences has played a role in shaping a unique perspective that you bring to the table. 
I'd love to move next to your current role as COO at Avesta 76 Therapeutics. Could you please share with our audience a bit about the company, the core technology, and how you ended up joining? So I got to know the core group that we all became co-founders through a really serendipitous encounter. So a lot of the consulting work I was doing was internationally focused. And then 2020, COVID made a lot of that go away. So I was already starting to look for what's my next thing going to do. So I was really catching up with a lot of friends from med school, friends from business school. And I was speaking to a friend who was a year above me in the healthcare program at Wharton. And I was like, yeah, I'm looking for my next thing, probably going to get back in on the operating side, looking for an opportunity. And she just goes, well, I have this hiking buddy here in LA who's working on this biotech. You want to talk to him? And that's uh, where my involvement with the Vesta started. So we met and started digging into the science, digging into the team. And it was kind of mind-blowing to me just how strong and how valuable the science was, where it had really uncovered a new way of thinking about disease that I'm very excited for us to be able to advance and to bring to the world. And they asked me to join on, and I've been there for about three and a half years now, and we've really made a ton of great progress. So the story of Avesta starts a long time ago. So it all starts with um, Yogesh, one of our co-founders. So he moved to the U.S. in the 60s, really trying to figure out the role that stress, oxidative stress, cellular metabolism plays in starting diseases being maintained. And his son, Sanjay, continued that work and discovered together this protein that is central to the way that cells deal with stress. So it's a protein that helps both transport toxins out of the cells, as well as helps bring in pro-growth signals. And Sanjay is a practicing oncologist, so he's a physician scientist. So he asked the question of how do we apply this to what I do day to day for my patients? And him and other groups uh, observed that cancer cells make 10 to 15 times more of this protein to survive. So they basically become dependent on this to be able to continue to grow. So he developed some research inhibitors that were able to, across all cancer types in mice, show full regression. So we have data showing full regression in breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate, ovarian, you name it. So that was one thing that when I first saw it was extremely exciting for me and all these big publications. But Sanjay wanted to go a step further and say, not only is this good for treatment, is this protein actually fundamental for cancers to form in the first place? And he did two important experiments, one where he gave mice that don't have a tumor suppressor, uh, P53, so those mice, that mice model, they always get cancer and die within two to six months of being born because they don't have any way of really good way of stopping cancer because they're missing P53. And then he gave some of the mice, the treatment mice, one of our inhibitors, and those mice lived a full lifespan and that had never been demonstrated before. And then he also created a mouse model where he took out the gene that codes for our protein. Those mice never developed cancer. And even if we, when he gave them strong carcinogens, those mice were resistant to cancer. So he was able to prove that like this is essential to cancer in the first place. And that was the real experiment that convinced him to start the company and convinced me to want to join. Since then, we've been able to make a lot of progress on a couple different treatment pathways, small molecules, antibodies, antisense, 
And over this past year, we've been really lucky to be able to expand that concept around oxidative stress and metabolism to other indications. So we now have products focused on radiation countermeasures. We have a partnership creating a new biomarker that's able to titrate and monitor responses to immunotherapies. We're working on a um, stem cell media additive that can be used for both research and cell therapies and industrial uses, working on this new AI-driven platform for drug discovery. So we really have a lot of amazing projects and programs in the works, and we think that we're going to really be able to have a huge impact and influence across many types of medicine and healthcare, especially oncology. Yeah, it's really exciting to hear how this robust science has given rise to a broad pipeline for the company that'll hopefully drive a lot of value for patients. I'd love to move next to the fundraising strategy, given that the initial founding of the company occurred during a swelling of valuations in the industry, followed by a sharp cooling off period. How has this informed the strategy for Avesta, and what has the experience been looking to raise funds to continue development? So as you know very well, this has been a very difficult time for biotech and tech and basically investment generally, because given economic downturn, given COVID, a lot of firms have just basically either held on to money to support their existing portfolio, or they held on to money to see what everyone else is going to do. So it made it a very difficult time to really try to convince people to take new bets on innovative technologies. There are also some firms that are just very old school. So we met with a group that they made no investments at all during 2020 because they said, we until we see someone in person, in face, we won't invest in them. So even stuff like that uh, hindered the market. So we took a unique approach where we decided early on that as long as, as long as we could to continue funding the company, friends and family, and then see what the markets look like. And what we did early on was we, through my network, through our CEO's network, went to some of the larger VCs that we were friendly with and just like did a pitch knowing full well they weren't going to invest, but getting on their radar and really getting that feedback that we needed to know what path to take forward. So we actually sat down with one of the leading biotechs and had several meetings. We met with one of their partners and they basically said, obviously it's too early and your size you're raising is too small, but here are the five experiments you want to see, and then we're going to be interested in the next round. So we went into the fundraising process, and we went into our R&D process knowing here are the milestones that the big guys want to see for that next round. So we knew what we had to build toward. So during that time, we were lucky enough to be able to fund the company um, through friends, family, and whatnot, and really drive the science forward in the way that we knew would make them uh, excited. And that's why we also started to build some of those other some of those other assets that we now have as part of our platform. So from getting that initial feedback on what to build toward, we started talking to some of the standard smaller VCs, some of the foundations and whatnot. And you get the same answers over and over again. Uh, come back when you have more data. Come back when you do this thing. Um, do you have a platform? Do you have this or that? Basically, VCs will find any reason to give you a no. And in this environment, it was easy for them to find reasons because they just didn't know what to do with their money. So they just had to hold on to it. So it, what we learned from that is it really helped us hone our hone the way we search for the right firms to reach out to, 
tone of the way that we pitched of what does this particular group want and how do we articulate our story that aligns with their mission or aligns with what they're looking for. And in the end, got a lot of great feedback from um, the smaller VCs, but we learned from them and other groups that in this environment, it made sense to go to some of the more like alternative funding sources that generally you don't go to at the beginning. So we started speaking to a lot of foundations, a lot of family offices, a lot of high net worth individuals, and then a lot of groups abroad, groups that generally look for U.S. biotech, but because of the structure of biotech investment here, the structure of basically everyone who knows each other invests with the same groups, it's very difficult for them to break in. And they're the groups who really are fired up and excited to take bets on innovative technology, especially in the U.S. and Europe. And got a lot of those kind of with the individuals and family offices to come in and during our friends and family round. But then now we actually, it's not announced yet. And we've been lucky enough that we've been able to raise a very sizable round that will support the company for a long time and all of our programs to really drive them forward. And those are two groups that are groups that are abroad in a region of the world that are really trying to figure out how do we make ourselves a new hub, a new nexus for innovation? How do we prove to the world that we as a country, we as a region, really know what it takes to drive healthcare forward, be that not just drug development, but knowing how to put together manufacturing and healthcare infrastructure and hospital systems and um, training, training of care providers. And we were one way of plugging into that system of not just as part of this deal, do they fund us to get these drugs moving forward. We're also pulling from ourselves and our networks to really help uh, with that, the cons kind of consulting that I was doing in the past of how do we really think about the bigger picture of innovation? So we got lucky to find two incredible partners that we're excited to work with one major partner who's really gone above and beyond in supporting us. And we're really excited to have them as our lead investor. And we're looking forward to 2024, where now that we are well, now we will be well-funded, ready to figure out the best way of driving our technologies forward and really trying to make an impact on patients. Really interesting to hear about sort of this creative approach to finding capital in an environment that I think was difficult for the entire industry and in a space that often can be can be very crowded and trying to stand out and garner attention is not as easy as it may seem, even if your team is very excited about the technology and the data you've produced. One last question we'd like to ask around the company is sort of how you thought about partnerships versus internal ownership of programs and what your strategy balancing the two might be going forward. So I think the strategy might the strategy is going to change slightly, but the strategy that we have or had currently was we want our internal resources to be um, as much as possible fully focused on oncology work, because that's the core of our technology. That's what we really think is going to change the world. And what we wanted to do was make sure all of these other very exciting technologies that we know will have a huge impact, but we know that we couldn't manage ourselves finding the right partners to do that work. So for the radiation-related work, we wrote a grant uh, application with uh, a branch of the DOD because they, they supported that work in the past and they really understand uh, with countermeasures and pre prevention how to drive that. We're working with a group in the UK on the biomarker. So they're doing a lot of that 
work in-house there. And then kind of we touch base back and forth. They're eventually going to ship up, ship us the chip, the device uh, that measures a certain biomarker. They're going to ship that back to us for us to start testing or the um, AI-driven platform um, identified a, a group that is cutting edge on how they think about the way that you can really parse technology from the genome, transcriptome and whatnot to really discover new targets, but mostly to validate as you're developing something, it's probability that it could go down a successful pathway. For uh, the stem cell work, we identified one of the leading stem cell research institutions in the country. So we've been able to really allow these groups to do a lot of the kind of bench work and a lot of the actual day-to-day -day management of the work outside of what we're doing so that we can have that touch point to say, this is the right direction, this is the wrong direction, let's balance things while we spend our internal resources fully focused on the oncology work. Now that we have um, more funding, that's probably going to shift since we'll be able to bring on more folks who'll be able to take in some of that work in-house. So we're actually at the point right now figuring out what resources do we need in-house to be able to drive some of these forward and what re resources do we want to continue to contract out. So we're at a really exciting time in the, in the company to be able to figure out what is our ongoing footprint look like, what is, our, what is the face of the company and like the, what, what we're going to bring to the world look like. What's the culture going to look like? So it's a really great time of going from a group of four to a group of maybe 15, 20 in the next several months to year. So a lot of a lot of growth and exciting things to come. Absolutely. And congrats again on the recent fundraising. Well, as an audience and as the team here at LifeSide Beat, look forward to hearing the official announcement um, signaling sort of the next phase uh, of the company's journey. To close... Part of our core mission here at LifeSide Beat is to empower the next generation of leaders and innovators in the life sciences. And we like to ask all our guests advice they would have for those looking to break into the life sciences, those with some experience who are looking to take on leadership roles, and then generally folks earlier on in their careers who are really excited about bringing some of these technologies forward for patients. I would say don't it's going to sound cliche but like don't be afraid to take risks don't be afraid to reach out to people because there are a lot more people in biotech than you think that are willing to give you their time and speak to you about their experiences and be able to support you as you're moving your career along but for me i would say the most important thing for me in our company as a core value is we are really big on inclusion very big on diversity, very big on making sure that people who don't often look like people who are in biotech have an opportunity to get into it. So we are entirely minority-led. We are recruiting a lot of people very heavily who have backgrounds that you don't typically think of in biotech because we really want to show that us being people of color, us being women, us being LGBT people or people with disabilities who haven't really had those mentors had those role models in healthcare that we can still do it we can still be in biotech that we can still be here and we want to make sure that that remains a core value so that's something that drives us forward and that we're really excited about in the future of biotech so i would say people who think that they don't fit into that biotech cookie cutter that's no longer true and that's never been true and really all of us deserve to be here and deserve to make a difference and we'll do that it's truly incredible to hear about how your 
including diversity and equity as part of your mission in building Avesta 76 Therapeutics. From the, myself and the team here at LifeSide Beat, we'd really like to thank you for your time. And I think our audience is really going to enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. Wish you the best. Wish the best to your audience. And keep an eye out in the next couple of months from a big announcement from Avesta 76. Mm-hmm.